Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Good evening and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, August 24th, 2023. My name is Mark Daly. Join me as always is Mr. Mark Hamilton. Hammy, how the heck are you? And before we get going, before I let you answer, I should let you answer. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Continue. Continue. <laughs> you obviously had a preamble that you wanted I, to share. I Go did. on. I, I'm just in a good mood because you know, I get that wonderful show opening music from JT the Human always puts me in a good mood. And also today is my daughter Alexis's 13th birthday, so I'm in an extra good mood. And Formula One is back this weekend, and that makes me even in a much more bigger, gooder mood. If you know, if that's even English, which I don't think it was, but whatever. I'm just, I'm just happy tonight. So yeah, yeah. It's just so going first good. of all. <laughs> shout out to your daughter happy birthday but Thank not only you. is it the return of formula one and by the way that that month-long break was way too short it went by so fast i felt <laughs> right? like you and i just sat down and recorded the belgian grand prix i know episode. but it did this is a special event for you because it's the dutch grand prix it's one of your two actually it's kind of one of your three home three. Grand Prix. i guess you have the british the yep. dutch and the canadian grand prix that's right. That's right. And and Zandvoort is a pretty cool track. You know, I was just kind of going through, looking over the history and some of the race wins and things like that. And, you know, I remember when I was like really little, like some of the races there, like in the early 80s, and then I like literally fell off the calendar for nearly 40 years. And uh, well, well, we're going to do a proper race preview later in the show. But it was interesting, James, or sorry, not James Hunt, uh, Jack, uh, sorry, Jim Clark. I'm getting my names all mixed up here. Jim Clark is the most winningest driver at, uh, at Zandvoort. Ford won four times and Max has won the past two years in a row. He could really vault himself up there into the the list of all-time winners because I think Jackie Stewart had three wins there in the 70s as well. So pretty cool. And it was neat to see some of the pictures of people doing track walks today and that that awesome banked corners and things like that. I mean, we talked about, I think it was either last week or the week before and some of like this, this trend of reprofiling that we've seen at circuits around the world and so some of them, you know, like what they've done to improve some of these different circuits, but the banked cornering that they put at Zanford, I think, was a, a real winner, and some of the other changes that they've done in some of the other tracks have uh, really worked well. But anyways, we're going to get into that. Uh, first of all, just a quick shout out to uh, the Race Weekend magazine. Go check them out, theraceweekend.com, R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. Enter in our promo code ScuderiaPod at checkout, save 10%. Also, a shout out to Tees and the crew at RacingExclusives.com. They're, they've gifted us with a wonderful autograph half-scale Max Verstappen helmet for the winner of our Fantasy League uh, this uh, year. I noticed that there were some changes, you know, going over the uh, the, the fantasy standings here. And we was talking about standings before we jump into it. I uh, just want to... Uh 
quickly go down the standings in the 2023 Formula One World Championship. On the driver's side, Max Verstappen, 314 points, leading his teammate Sergio Perez, who has 189. Fernando Alonso, 40 points behind Sergio. He has 40, 149 points, pardon me. Lewis Hamilton, only a single point behind Fernando now with 148. And then Charles Leclerc from Ferrari, Rounding out the top five, he has 99, and uh, so does George Russell, who is in six. Over on the constructor side, we have Red Bull blazing the way with a hefty 503 points. Mercedes, 247. Aston Martin, 196. Ferrari, 191. That's getting awfully tight there as well. And then McLaren, 103. And a couple other uh, things here. Happy birthday to Nico Hulkenberg, who turned 36 uh, this week. On this date 20 years ago, Fernando Alonso won his first ever GP in Formula One, driving a Renault R23 at the 2003 Hungarian Grand Prix, and at the time became the youngest winner in F1 history until Max Verstappen came along and said, hold my beer. Well, he didn't say hold my beer. (laughs) Hold my non-alcoholic beer and won it when he was like, what, 17 years old? 18 years old, whatever it was, at the Spanish Grand Prix. A couple other cool things as well. Disney Plus has released the first uh, previews of their four-part uh, documentary on Braun, The Impossible Formula One Story, which will be narrated by Keanu Reeves, which is going to be pretty cool. Also, big congrats to the Spanish women's football team winning the Women's World Cup this past weekend. Very exciting. And the Men's Basketball World Cup is underway. The Vuelta España, that gets underway this weekend. So many exciting and and top-class elite sports going on. And NFL kicks off just around the corner as well. So you you can understand why I'm in a good mood. I I hope I'm sharing some of the the, the happiness because, boy, there's still a lot of bad news out there. So this is like our, our release valve for the week to come in here and talk about Formula One thing and other things too. But Hammy, I'm sitting here, I'm kind of jabbering on. We've got things to talk about. And you know, we we did tell everybody before the summer break or at the beginning of the summer break, we were gonna do a mid-season review. Dropped a ton of content over the past three and a half weeks, never actually did it. And then we decided, well, we don't really need to do one, or we, you know, we kind of run out of time to do one. So let's go over this like really quickly. Okay, so your award for the bid-season reward for the best driver in Formula One in the 2023 season who isn't Max Verstappen because Max gets an A-plus, Red Bull gets an A-plus. Let's just put it out there. There's no discussion about there. Max, Red Bull, completely awesome. You know, they, they, they get all the accolades deserved. But the best driver this year who is not Max Verstappen. So, and following up, you can probably so guess what my way, number two question is going to be. very much putting me on the spot here. I did not yeah. know about these line of questions, but no question. And I think we can move on quite quickly. It's Fernando Alonso. He's extracted yes. every ounce of potential from that Aston Martin. And again, when you comp him against his teammate, he is just miles ahead. No pun intended, but for sure, Fernando Alonso. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll agree with that one. And now, so by, by follow-up to that question... Which is the best Formula One team that isn't Red Bull this year? <laughs> you know, there's there's a bit of a predictable kind of line of questioning here, and I apologize for putting you on the spot, but no, this is dude, kind of like I your can it. of corn, it. right? This yeah, yeah, is, this I, is like, I, yeah, I love it. I I think that the there's an urge to say Aston Martin, but you said team, and team yes. is inclusive of the mechanics and everyone at the factory and the team principal and the drivers and. Given how poor Lance Stroll has been, like I can't in turn give it to that team, right? Like there, you, you, there has to be a penalty for how terrible Lance Stroll has been relative to his teammate. So, 
Yeah, and then what do you do? Does it have to be Mercedes with with Lewis sitting P4 and George sitting P6? Like that seems to be pretty predictable, but I just I can't award Aston Martin given the relative relatively terrible performance of Lance Stroll so far this year. So maybe Mercedes? I don't know. What about I, I, you? I can't really give it to either based on those uh, two things because they've both kind of had their ups and downs. They've had their moments. And I think that uh, really kind of is reflected in the, uh, the the Constructors Championship that we were just talking about a moment ago. But um, yeah, I mean, Lance has been very disappointing. Fernando has been a revelation. I mean, you know, that that funny thing that he does with his face that, uh, you know, where he sees his teeth, I thought he was snarling, but turned out, you know, he's actually happy and smiling. Happy Fernando's not a Fernando I remember like at any any time in recent history. So that's been kind of good. But I mean, they've been a little bit up and down. I mean, they got off to such a great start during the year. Fernando was a fixture on the podium in the first half of the first half of the season and that they kind of regressed a little bit. Mercedes kind of picked it up. I mean, the thing is that, you know, not one of those, the, the other teams has really established a lock on that uh, that second place to really be that sort of standout of the, the, the best of the rest. You know, of course, you know, like I was saying just now, when I went down and recapped the the constructors championship, I mean Ferrari's only like four or five points behind Aston in the the constructors. Now that's going to be, I think, when all like the the alarms and the sirens and the flashing lights and people screaming and running down the the hallways at uh, Aston Martin headquarters at Silverstone if they get overtaken by Ferrari in the uh, the in the constructors, because that would be pretty alarming considering how they started the season and. And Ferrari hasn't been horrible, but they haven't really been not horrible either. You know what I mean? I mean, it's obviously a transitional year for them. But anyways, we can kind of debate this for a very, very long time. But yeah, we'll go with that. We'll go with Fernando, driver of the season thus far, who is not Max Verstappen. And Mercedes and Aston Martin, the team of the year, who are not... Red Bull thus far. And there, there you go. We could have done this thing. We could have done our mid-season review. Mid-season we could have been like done. It could have been like a 10-minute episode. Cut a check. We're done here. <laughs> exactly. We're done. The, the only other thing I would add, and and I was thinking about this a lot over the last couple of weeks, because I, I was I assumed we were going to do a show. And I think there's a lot of angst and frustration with Red Bull because they're the reason. There's a lot of negative energy being pointed towards Red Bull because they're the reason the championship is so lopsided. And they're the reason the championship is just kind of decided already. But I think that anger needs to be pointed at the rest of the grid, right? Like, it's Mercedes' fault that that gap's there. It's Aston Martin's fault that the gap's there. It's Ferrari's fault that the gap's there. That that why are we? Why is there so much negative energy and frustration being pointed towards Red Bull? And then people will turn around like, "Oh, they cheated in twenty one. They breached the cost cap." I'm like, again, as I sit on this and I stew on this, and I am not a Red Bull supporter by any means. But the reality is that was a genius move. That that they ultimately overspent, whether it was intentional or not. It gained them a not insignificant advantage. The penalty was super low. They knew it was going to be low because they can read the financial and sporting regulations. Like they're just. They're just in a great place. And and my frustration and anger isn't with Red Bull. It's with Mercedes. Build a better mm-hmm. car. It's with Ferrari. Build a better car. It's even with Aston Martin. It's build a better car and don't bring upgrades that break it midway through a really strong <laughs> season and hire better second drivers. Like That's where my frustration is. So I just want to be clear that I don't like the Delta. Like Right now, we're sitting on a 250. 56 point death delta between Mercedes and Red Bull. That sucks. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's turning people off the sport, but I don't blame Red Bull for it. I blame the rest of the teams. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, the, the the best way to sum it up. Okay, got a couple of cool uh, infographics here that uh, that you've pulled together. Not really sure of the sources, but the first uh, one here is Reddit. I, every, Reddit? Mark, okay. Everything from the show is, is <laughs> surfaced from Reddit and Twitter. And I apologize, the first one that I, I didn't capture the individual's name. So if you're listening out there, just know we're not taking credit for this. Somebody on Somebody on Reddit created this. Yeah, it's very cool. So this is F1 race wins by driver nationality. So since 1950, we've had 1,091 Formula One Grand Prix, 130, sorry, 113 race winners, 23 nationalities, and 88 of those have been home wins. And so this is probably not going to be too much of a surprise, but the, the country, the nation that leads the way with 308 Grand Prix wins is the United Kingdom. That includes uh, Lewis Hamilton, Nigel Mansell, James Hunt, Jim Clark, etc. Some great drivers in there. German drivers, 179 uh, race wins. Brazilian drivers, 101. French drivers, 81. Finnish drivers, 57. Dutch drivers, 45, of which Max has like all of them, I suppose. <laughs> you have Italian drivers, 43. Australian uh, drivers have won 43 as well. Austrian drivers, 41. Argentina, 36. U.S. drivers, 33 race wins. And Spanish drivers, 33. Canadian drivers, 17. And then let's go on the in the list. We also have Swedish, New Zealand uh, uh, drivers as well. Belgium, South Africa, Mexico, Switzerland, Colombia, Monaco, which would be Charles Leclerc, Poland, and Venezuela. So that is uh, very, very cool. The next one we have here is ratios of wins to F1 starts. So we have here for Max Verstappen, of course, uh, I got it all right. That uh, It wasn't a hard guess. So Max, 45 career victories. Dutch drivers all time have 45 race victories in Formula 1. So that those are all Max. So he's had 175 race starts, Grand Prix starts in his F1 career. That is amazing. Where did the time go? I can't believe... We're sitting here in 2023 talking about Max Verstappen, who has 175 race starts in the sport under his belt. Anyways, Max, 45 uh, wins, 25.71% of wins. Uh, that's the ratio of wins to F1 starts. Alain Prost, 51 wins in 199 starts. That was an entire career. And of course, uh, you know, back in that day when Prost was an active driver, they were, you know, much shorter seasons, like was it 16 in those days, in the 80s and 90s. Ayrton Senna, 25.47 wins, 41 wins out of 161 starts. So that is a, a very, very impressive list of uh, champions you have there. Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost, Max Verstappen, more Formula One world titles between them. That's just uh, amazing. And then this is the, the next one here. This is the, the feel-good story or, or tweet of the week, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure if this came Twitter X or if this came from Instagram, but the the author is Jenny Gao. And when I saw that you put this in, Mark, this this literally made my day when you sent this to me yesterday because it was so sad to hear that uh, you know because she's such a bright personality, she knows what she's talking about, very personable. You know, just to always enjoy listening to to, to Jenny Gao. And I was just I was crushed when I heard earlier this uh, year over the winter that she had a stroke at such a young age. It was just devastating for herself and her family. 
Anyways, uh, Jenny had uh, posted uh, the other day, I'm delighted and a little nervous to say that I will be returning to the F1 circuit for the Dutch Grand Prix. It's been almost eight months since my stroke and I'm still not able to do all the things I could uh, I could before. But um, IMG, BBC Five Live and F1 are going to help me get back into the pit lane to see how I go. My lovely therapists are supporting me and continue to remind me I'm a work in progress and not the finished article. So please bear with me, mind the gaps and wish me luck. So many people to thank at this point, I'll just have to say a special thank you to Sky Sports F1 for being so supportive of my husband and me. I can't thank them and their generosity enough. I can't wait to be back on your radio. I've missed it so much. Speak to you on Thursday. So great news and um, glad to, to see and hear that uh, Jenny will be back in the pit lane this week. And we certainly have uh, missed her a lot. Okay, Mark. So... We're going to jump into this now. So according to Autosport, 95.65% of the past 23 races have been won by Red Bull. No team in Formula One history has ever managed to run as, uh, pardon me, ever managed a run of races that's successful. Will they make it 23 out of 24 at the Dutch Grand Prix? Yes. Next question. <laughs> you know, I think it would be a little bit silly here, but, you know, it, it really is difficult uh, to, to, to to bet against them. You know, especially we go to um, a, a track by like Zanfort. Max is going to be pumped up. I mean, you know, he's been faultless and driving at such an incredible level for, for so many literally years now. The one thing is that, that, that Zanfort, very tight, very technical, very short track. You know, it, it's not very long. And, uh, you know, it, it's only 2.64 miles, 4.2 uh, kilometers. We, we got about like a one minute, 10 lap. So it's pretty short. It's kind of like um, the, the Red Bull ring, not an elevation, but kind of compact, kind of winds back on itself. I guess the, the, the one thing that uh, we could maybe, you know, I don't want to say hope for, but the one thing that we could see on a tight, twisty track like that is a bit of mayhem, a little bit of chaos and a VSC or a full safety car that could maybe uh, throw things out. But, you know, Max is going to get an extra 50 uh, horsepower virtually, you know, or, you know, spiritually, mentally, psychologically, however you want to put, you know, put it, uh, racing in front of his home fans this weekend. Yes. Yeah. I'm joking. I just, I just waited for your reaction. I was just waiting for your reaction. That was actually a bad place to put that that comment. Like I should have put it at the back of the podcast. And by the way, I'm super excited to talk about Zanvor because boy, do I have feelings about that circuit. And if you want to know what they are, you've got to wait the next two and a half hours of this podcast to get there. But daily, maybe we take a break so we have a reason to come back and play our breaking news intro, my my new favorite licensed music for the show. And then we can get into... Uh, get into the news yeah absolutely we'll do that we're going to take a, a quick break here we'll have a quick word from our sponsors we'll be back on the flip side with uh it's not really breaking news ham if you tell them before you go to a break it's breaking news anyways back in a moment passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, 
you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with the latest news in Formula One. And boy, do we have some stories for you. Starting with this breaking news, fresh off the proverbial press, Haas. Again, Haas is a Formula One team. It's largely irrelevant in the grand scheme of things <laughs> because they underinvest in the team and they certainly don't contend for anything, especially championship points. But Haas has announced that Kevin Magnussen and Nico Hulkenberg will return for the 2024 F1 season. Of course, that was always a question because they were both on one-year contracts. I, you know, I've got some thoughts, Mr. Daly, and I'm going to share them quickly because I, I want to hear yours as well. But to me, this is this is Haas being very, very, very economical, and and by that I mean they're very low-risk drivers. They're very low cost drivers in the grand scheme of things. They certainly don't cost a lot. They're both well on the wrong side of 30 years old. Neither of them have been particularly successful, but they also don't spend a lot of time putting these ultra expensive Haas cars into the wall. So I I get it from a a Gunther Steiner perspective that, look, I don't have a lot of money to spend on drivers and these guys aren't going to crash the cars, but it's also not very aspirational. And you and I have talked about this in the past that They've been on the grid now since 2016. They've never been a threat, never remotely been a threat. They they harvest as many parts as they can out of Marinello. They basically have a, a watered-down Ferrari. But ultimately, I don't know what their end game is. That Gene Haas continues to underinvest in this team. They don't spend to the cap. They're never going to be a threat. And when we hear about teams and organizations like Andretti that are ready and prepared to spend hundreds of millions of dollars building up the infrastructure to be competitive in F1, I get really frustrated when there's a team like Haas that's clogging up a spot on the grid. And, you know, last week, I think, or maybe the week before, I talked about the fact that Gunther Steiner himself is adamantly opposed to another team on the grid. Like, you know what, dude? You got on the grid for $0 in 2016. You now have a team that you could sell on for hundreds of millions of dollars, despite the fact that you add zero value to the champion. So ultimately, <laughs> the news here is Magnuson and Hulkenberg are coming back for 2024. And like I said, it's not particularly aspirational, but I get it if you want to run a cut-rate F1 organization. Yes. 
See, it's my turn to do that now. It seems kind of funny because, you know, we, we, we debuted this, uh, this brand new breaking news music that we have for somewhat of a bit of an underwhelming update. But at least you know, we got this thing all locked and loaded and primed for the next time that uh, something really big uh, you know breaks. Anyhow, I, I do agree with what you say. And the other thing is, too, that uh, if the car was slightly better, I think that uh, that these two drivers would be more you know capable of some of the, you know, like your, your big Schumacher's. And the uh, the 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 other guy who remains nameless that uh, were young and inexperienced, like you say, had a tendency to put those cars into the wall and crash them all the time. And you know, I know that uh, you know that that Mick was, uh, you know. He obviously had a lot to learn. We still don't really know what his true, true potential is. We don't know if he'll ever get a race seat again. However, I think that, um, you know, I think you've largely nailed it on your analysis. But I do think if the car was better, if it was faster, if they're, they, you know, they were trying to, I don't know, do something that uh, I, I think that the pair of Kevin Magnuson and Nico Hulkenberg could deliver them points on a on a regular basis. If the car you know, was they- better, be more aspirational with your driver. That both of these individuals yeah. have significant experience and tenure in a Formula One car. Uh, before we move on to the next topic, quick uh, breakdown of their head-to-head statistics this year. So they both competed in 12 Grand Prix. Uh, Nico's championship standings or kind of placement in the championship standings right now, 14th, Kevin Magnuson, 18th. Nico's best race result this year is a sixth. Kevin Magnuson's broken into the points once with a P10. Neither have scored a win, neither have scored a pole, neither have scored a fastest lap. Nico currently sits on nine championship points. Kevin Magnuson sits on two. Uh, Nico's completed 710 laps. Kevin Magnuson's actually completed more at 736. Uh, Nico has one DNF. Kevin Magnuson has two. Um, yeah, so I, I think that about summarizes it. And like, if you glance at that, like, yeah, it looks like Nico is clearly outperforming Kevin Magnuson, but I think that's a little bit deceiving because I think Nico has been a much better qualifier and puts himself in a much better place to start a Grand Prix. But I think if you look at their individual race paces and things like that, they're probably a little bit closer than that. But obviously, it's not a good luck that Kevin Magnuson, who was brought back to this team after being kicked out of the team to accommodate uh, that young <laughs> Russian driver and then was that then ceremoniously brought back um, is kind of sitting P18 in the championship. That's not ideal when Nico, who's new to the team and new to that car, is sitting P14. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Okay, let's uh, move on to the next one. I'm going to let you take this one, but uh, it's an article from Racer.com uh, titled F1 Wraps Up the First Half of 2023 in ESPN with Another Record Audience. You know, this one's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, we've talked uh, quite a bit you know, recently that, um, you know, this this less than stimulating season, an exciting season, and hasn't been ideal. And we were concerned, both you and I and many other people too, that, that this would turn off a lot of fans, especially in the you know, the, the hard won uh, fans that, that that they've gained in the U.S. over the past uh, couple of years, because that that really has been the I wouldn't say a holdout, but the one of the last untapped real resources to really capture the American sports fan, really capture their imagination, their 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 passion for sports, and we start start to see that over the past uh, couple of years, you know, due largely in part to, to uh, the, the the drive to survive phenomenon and the fact that. Uh, that that Formula One was one of the only elite level sports that was going during the pandemic, and that's when a lot of people really tuned in. And then this year, what with the the, the dominance that we've seen from Max Verstappen and, and Red Bull, it's, it's it's turned people off because it's become very 
predictable, right? And, you know, and we, we've talked about, so you go watch a NASCAR race, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen from corner to corner. Indy has, uh, you, know, you know, been proving to be quite a, an exciting series, series as well. But what do the numbers tell us, Hammy? So, Daly, I'm just going to back this up a little bit. Hamilton, okay. I'm going to let you take this next one from racer.com. 18 and a half minutes later, you hand I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing because I did the exact same thing to you. But, but I, I think if you listen to us, you're probably a little bit confused yep. because in the last three months, we've probably spoken to the fact that ratings and interest are down. And then we're coming back to you saying, according to racer.com, which is speaking to some statistics that ESPN and ABC published, ratings are actually up this year. And, and numbers for F1 this year aren't terrible, according to racer.com, through the opening 12 races of the 23 championship. ESPN is, well, I guess it's ESPN slash ABC, are averaging 1.24 million viewers per race across their spectrum of networks, which is ESPN, ESPN2, and ABC. That average is slightly higher than the overall season average for 2022, which finished at 1.21. Um, which was the highest ever for F1 in the United States. So, so far this year, they're building, marginally building on the number that they had last year. Interestingly, that 1.24 number, that average, is really bolstered by three specific events. And that is the Miami Grand Prix uh, this year, which drew 1.96. Monaco, which drew 1.79. And Canada, which drew 1.79. Six, uh, which currently sits second, third, and fourth in the all-time list for live F1 television audiences. So it's a mixed bag. And I think the question is, are our numbers stagnating or should we actually be pretty impressed with these numbers given the quality of the championship? The one, the one thing, and I'm, I'm always such a Debbie Downer and I always throw such a cold towel on this, I like to provide a little bit of comp. And I brought up the, the year-to-date NASCAR numbers because, you know, again, NASCAR is probably less of a national sport and it's pretty regionalized, but it's also deeply entrenched. To give you a comp, I can't find a NASCAR race this year that's drawn less than 2.2 million people. Um, and if hmm, you look at some of the events, Nashville Super Speedway, the Ally 400, three and a quarter million, Charlotte Motor Speedway, the Coca-Cola 600, four million, the Chicago Street Course drew 4.63 million. Um, if we look at the 2023 Daytona 500, which is, I don't think there's anything on the F1 calendar yet that can rival that. It drew 8.1 million people. Auto Club Speedway drew 4.3. Like, we're not even in the realm of NASCAR yet. And NASCAR, of course, peaked, I think, in terms of broad national interest in probably the late 2000s, right before the global recession. I always think of, uh, what's that comedy called? The Will Ferrell comedy. Ricky Bobby. I can't believe I forgot that. I always feel like Talladega Nights was peak NASCAR popularity, but NASCAR ratings continue to crush continue to crush F1. What what these numbers don't tell you is that the NASCAR demo is older and is more likely to watch on cable television. And that's where these ratings come from. And what Formula One and what Liberty don't do is share streaming numbers. So the total audience, when you talk about a combined streaming audience and a combined TV sub audience, could be much bigger than we're seeing here. These are just the only numbers that we see. And I'd love one day to be able to get this holistic view of, hey, here's the subscription viewers, the TV viewers, and the illegal streaming viewers, because I think that number (laughs) is probably much, much bigger. And I would argue that NASCAR probably doesn't have a big streaming audience. I don't think anyone's illegally streaming NASCAR. And again, because the demo's older, they're more likely to have a TV with an ESPN or a Comcast cable box, and they're probably watching off of their TV sub. But again, the takeaway here is numbers are flat versus prior year, um, but mm-hmm. that could decline if the championship kind of withers out very quickly here. 
Yeah, you know, it's very interesting that you should, uh, you should say that, like just talking about like TV subs compared to like uh, streaming subs, right? And we have both in our house, right? And it's interesting. In my cable package, I have TSN, which is the you know sports network here in Canada. They have the rights to to, uh, to broadcast Formula One. However, I've switched you know, exclusively to streaming Formula One and all my F1 content. Uh, well, you know, official content that is on uh, on F1 TV Pro. I mean, I've been doing it now for two, three years, whatever it is. I mean, when that uh, that Apple TV, that native Apple TV app that uh, dropped was it a year, eighteen months ago, or whatever it was, that was like a game changer because I mean, like everybody else was doing before that, I was just casting to my TV from my phone. I like it was good, but as soon as I had like this Apple TV app, like right away, it, it's become a game changer. I mean, I go to like to, to YouTube and different, you know, to different uh, you know websites and check out their content there too but i mean race day and qualifying and anything like that it's all on f1 tv pro so that that's interesting like you i'd be very interested to see what those uh, streaming numbers are i would think it's probably flipped around i think there's probably more people globally streaming f1 in this day and age as to uh you know like watching it on like a like a, a cable subscription service because i don't know my, my feeling is that i feel that like you know the demo for f1 is younger i feel that f1 fans are more tech savvy and uh but you know i totally agree i, I totally yeah, agree yeah, i think yeah. we we have to be careful too and, and i shared this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago that not every region has access to f1 tv pro i mean they can get the app yes. but they don't get the yeah. live races and that's because liberty has really strict agreements with local broadcasters so we sit here in canada and we're kind of lucky because what tsn which for all intents and purposes like i'm going to move on i'm I'm going to i'll save my comments about bell media for another day but we've got tsn of course they're terrible because they broadcast in race advertisements but we also have the full unlocked f1 tv pro app um now what i understood and we shared this a few weeks ago is that a lot of people in countries where f1 tv pro isn't available use a vpn and unfortunately that's no longer going to be an option for them and surprisingly for those of our listeners living outside the uk in the uk the f1 tv pro app doesn't exist like you are forced to subscribe to sky like you are forced to subscribe to Sky. And I think the minimum package all in is like $100 a month. So if you live in the UK and you want to watch live Formula One races, you either stream illegally with some super sketchy Russian website and you're going to get infected with malware, or you pay a minimum of $100 a month to get that Sky package, which is such a terrible experience. When you and I are sitting here paying, what, $70, $80 Canadian a year for every race, every practice session, every race going back to 2007. Like I cannot... I cannot stress enough what a great value that is. They can double the price and God knows they probably will now that I said this, but they could double <laughs> the price and it would still be a fantastic value. Yeah, and it's it's one of those streaming services that uh, that is an absolute uh, must do for me. I mean, there, there's quite a few and 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 that's the problem like I, I mean, I I think we all saw the writing on the wall but like 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 a decade ago that that's where technology and that's what you know things are trending towards in, in in the future be streaming but now it's almost become too much because it seems like you have to have like a specialty subscription to you know for formula 1 one for this one for that and it's just like like you say 70 
70, 80, they could double it to 150, you know, you and I would pay it. And, but the thing is that, you know, if you want all this, uh, you know, this content, you know, now, which you used to get like in your cable package, now you have to go to like multiple streaming services and it starts to add up. And I've actually found, uh, you know, a couple of times that, you know, I've passed on a couple of different streaming services just because it starts to get a little bit uh, cost prohibitive. But, you know, like you say, we're very fortunate that we can get it here. And, you know, my real big beef with TSN is um, not the fact that, that they they do their, you know, their, their in-race commercials. I mean, you just kind of get used to it. But the thing that really kind of burned me was that the producers were obviously waiting when people would have like eyes on the screen. Dog, it's like Lewis Hamilton. No Lee, question. Like, yeah. No, no Lu- question whatsoever. Yeah. And I remember years ago, we were doing a, a Twitter spaces chat and somebody came yeah. on. They actually started grilling Tim Haraney about that. Poor Tim Haraney's <laughs> not in the broadcast studio. He's not the director inserting the advertisements. But But again, it's not just you and I that feel that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's the one thing that really bugged me the most was just like the blatant and obvious timing of commercial breaks. Anyhow, but those are uh, very very interesting uh, numbers, Mark. So we'll uh, keep uh, watching. But you know, just from from the like the point of view, like the perspective, the numbers for this podcast. I mean, we've seen exponential growth in our listenership over the past couple of years. This year is kind of holding steady with like 2022. So I mean, we haven't seen that. And of course, you know, big shout out and thanks to everybody that uh, you know that uh, that joins in and listens every week but you know um you know we're hoping to see more growth this year but you know at least the numbers are staying steady which is uh, which is promising now, what is also promising, which is uh, really cool to see, is the race organizers at uh, the Circuit of the Americas for the uh, the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, Texas, said that they are not changing the recipe amid uh, F1's Miami and uh, Las Vegas Grand Prix. I think this is great because you know. Vegas, of course, is going to be a spectacle. We, we we're going to experience this whole thing, and we're going to be blown away by it. I'm sure, even at home when we're watching it, and the people that are watching it there on the strip in Las Vegas in November, I've kind of gotten used to Miami over the past two years now, and the vibe, and you know the the way that uh, that they run their their event now. But uh, the, you know, Coda, Austin, you know, it has more of a you know down to earth. You know, it just feels like a more grassroots kind of event. They've had uh, huge numbers there. You know, Austin is a cool city, and you know, I, I you know, my thing is, and w- what makes me happy to read this story that uh, they came up motorsport.com when I heard this is just like first thing popped in my mind, Mark. With if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, you you got a formula that works there in in Austin. Don't try to be Vegas. Don't try to be Miami. Just stay Austin. Do what you do best, and you know you you should still be successful, in my opinion. Twenty twenty three will be the tenth running of the U.S. Grand Prix at Code. Of course, the first races was in twenty twelve, and I remember watching it live on TV and and seeing Lewis Hamilton win. I, I guess it was his final Grand Prix in a McLaren. Although maybe one more after that. I don't remember. But either way, they, they've been there a while. And and I also still distinctly remember that the first few years of Formula One in Austin were mired in controversy because the state had provided huge financial subsidies to bring F1 in. And it was just a bloodbath financially. They couldn't draw flies. Nobody was interested. And then it seemed to turn a little bit in 2016 when they brought in Taylor Swift to be the the concert on, on, the, on the Sunday. And of course, they've accelerated in interest ever since then. But I agree with you that I I look at Miami, the Miami Grand Prix. Okay, I'm, I'm fine to watch on TV, but Mark, that Grand Prix is not for you and me. 
Like it's not like no, that. No. That is not for us. It is not for our income bracket. And Las Vegas is definitely not for our income bracket. Like you and I are, aren't even going to pretend that we're ever going to attend those races. But there's something about Coda that seems very lunch pail, blue collar, kind of for the masses. And it's the closest thing in the U.S. to a traditional Formula One Grand Prix, which is it's a yes. traditional circuit. It's yeah. carved out of the countryside. There's a big fence around it. Everyone comes storming in carrying their coolers and their beer and their flags and their camping chairs and it's just a big festival slash party for two or three days right like it is what it is it could be swampy it could be dirty it could be sweaty there probably aren't enough bathrooms the merch is going to sell out but everyone's just there to get sunburnt and have fun and i think they've done a really good job of it the other thing that i took away from this article is obviously we've seen their attendance ratchet up the last couple of years because there's been demand and they've added some grandstands um, one of the takeaways that i had from here is one that they're hoping with some additional infrastructure improvements that in the next couple of years, they could crack the 500,000 spectator mark over a three-day weekend, which would be absolutely legendary. F1's never done that before. And then the other thing, and I saw this on Reddit the other day, is you can actually pick up your your Coda tickets at Costco in the US now. So if you go to a Costco in Texas, you know how you can buy like movie theater tickets and like ski tickets and golf passes and things like that? You can actually go to an, into a, a Costco in Texas and buy uh, three-day passes for 350 bucks, which I thought was uh, which I thought was pretty cool. But again, it just speaks That's to it's, awesome. the, it's the everyone per <laughs> every person's Grand Prix. And I, I love it. Um, and while I have strong feelings about about the state of Texas, and although my experiences going and visiting, they're awesome. The people are awesome. The food is awesome. But this is this is if I had the opportunity to go to any of the three races in the U.S., it'd be this one for sure. Yeah, you you really nailed it. It's like very much like you're a traditional Formula One race. Just the the, the whole experience around it. I, you know, I I don't have. I think you nailed it. I don't need to add anything else to that one. Okay, so let's uh, move on to the next uh, story here. And uh, so this one is, uh, again, from Racer.com. Is uh, why Ben Sulaim is willing to pitch the FIA against Liberty and the new team's debate. And this is an interesting uh, one to talk about because this really seems to be, you know, this has become a thing, right? It, it seems like there's become like these two camps and and everybody seems so passionate about it on, you know, like if, if, like on the, the, the teams and the, the, the regulator, you got Liberty. And it just it seems interesting how everybody's kind of like sort of dug in there into their into their their position. You got these different camps, and it's interesting that uh, you know Ben Sulaim has really decided to you know throw themselves at the FIA that is into the, the 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 whole debate. What do you make about it, Mark? It's such an interesting topic, and you and I have talked about this ad nauseum. So we probably don't need to spend a lot of time here. But this article from the Racer dot com is really kind of posing the question, like what. What is the end game here that that Ben Salam knows darn well that Liberty and the teams have no desire or interest in adding additional teams to the grid? And Ben Salam keeps pointing at the at the Concord Agreement saying, no, no, like we, we've agreed that there could be 12 teams on the grid. And furthermore, he began and, and he was very vocal about this in February of accepting applications for new teams. And there's a ton of criteria that they have to go through. But ultimately, at some point this year, the FIA led by Mohamed Ben Salem is going to come forward and say, hey, we recommend this bid 
and it's probably going to be Andretti. It could be two. And ultimately, it's going to pitch them in a fierce battle with Liberty because everyone knows what a Liberty's opinion is here, that they are not ready or willing to accept a new team. But the FIA is dragging these potential entrants through the process. They're going to make a recommendation. Liberty's going to say no. They're going to get to loggerheads. That potential bid, that potential candidate that's been recommended is probably going to pursue legal action. Like he just, it feels like he's setting the FIA and, and Liberty up for a collision course. And I, in a sense, I don't disagree that, look, you know what, if there's a really otherworldly candidate out there that's going to add true financial value to the sport and they're willing to pay a, a truly um, appropriate expansion fee, like, let's have that conversation. But I don't like the fact that he's railroading this through, knowing that Liberty's not open to it. And at the same time, I don't like the fact that the teams in Liberty aren't open to the idea either, even if there was uh, an incrementally or significantly higher expansion fee. But it's just interesting. And Ben Salem certainly has not walked lock and step with Liberty, right? This isn't the first time they've come to loggerheads. He had to step away from this, from, from F1 earlier this year because he'd made some really wildly inappropriate comments about the valuation of Liberty. And Liberty basically yeah. had to set their yeah. lawyers on him and say, hey, you need to stop talking about our business because you're compromising the value of the sport. But but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because, at some, again, like I said, Daly, at some point this year, he's going to recommend Andretti. I just, I think that's a law. And then it's it's setting Liberty up to be the bad guy because they're going to have because I, I would say if you spoke to any Formula One fan, like the general consensus, especially on this side of the Pacific in North America, the general consensus is they want Andretti on the grid. And, and now they're going to set Liberty up to have to decline that. And it's just it's going to be really messy, man. So in the back half of the year, we're going to be talking about the cost cap and potential breaches. And we're going to be talking about this endlessly. It's interesting, right? When you see, like, you know, in 2023, when you see, like, the FIA led by Mohammed bin Salam, like you say, at loggerheads with the commercial rights holder at Liberty Media, it's very different from the way things used to be. You had the FIA run, run by, well, depends what area you're going with, but then you had uh, Formula One management run by Bernie Ecclestone. And I wouldn't say that. You know, let's just say that they seem very friendly with one another, right? It's just like they're obviously different entities, but you know, they they, they seem like they they got on very well together. So to to have uh, Ben Sulaim kind of coming out and and I completely forgotten about that when uh, you know he, <laughs> he you know kind of I wouldn't say put his foot in his mouth, but uh, you know certainly you know he had an opinion on that valuation of liberty, and he certainly didn't uh, see any problem holding it back. I mean, maybe uh, you know the FIA's lawyers maybe advised him to you know think about saying something similar in the future. But uh, yeah, it, it will be a very interesting situation that when they come and say, okay, well, it's Andretti or whoever it is, is the the, the recommended bid and the the, the expected um, you know showdown, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting to watch and a, a situation that uh, you know we're, we're not really used to because you know when, when you said earlier in the program you had Haas joined the sport in 2016 basically for nothing nothing regardless if it's andretti or if it's some of these other bids that have kind of like or you know reported you know suspected bids that have kind of like you know 
percolated up through the news feed over the, you know, the, the the recent months. Regardless who it is, it's uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see this whole thing kind of kick off. So we'll see what uh, what what happens, and you know who's going to be the one. Is going to be a bend but don't break. Is somebody going to complete completely uh, buckle over? It's you know. It's uh, there's always drama in Formula there One. There is, and, and that was that was the thing <laughs> right? that I was going to add, man. Is like none of this is new. There's always something no. going on off, the, and it's it's all about greed and it's all about money. Yep. And and I think that that's maybe the one thing that we have to kind of the one. I, I think I'm trying to think about the right way to say this, but the FIA is itself a nonprofit, right? Like ideally, they're looking at this through a different lens than Liberty, which is why they're, they're not worried about the potential impact of the valuation of the F1 teams and how much money the individual F1 teams make. That maybe if we give Mohamed Ben Salem the benefit of the doubt here, he's looking at this through the lens that we have an opportunity to increase the global reach of F1 by adding teams, and it's the right thing to do. And then Liberty and, and the F1 teams are looking at this strictly, maybe they're one and the same, I don't know, but clearly the F1 teams are looking at it as adding additional teams is going to subtract from the income that we earn from this sport because it's unlikely that a new team is going to increase the size of the pie. They're going to take away from our slice of the pie. And then Liberty's probably thinking, hey, I just need to keep the teams happy because I don't want to be in a situation like in 2010 where I had teams threatening to leave the sport. And that's wildly unlikely, but Liberty has to has to pander to the teams to a certain degree because those are the biggest stakeholders in the sport financially. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's kind of funny when you think about it that, uh, you know, a decade and a bit ago, like you say, you had teams that would threaten to basically pack up and take their toys and go home, right? And uh, now it would be just like, are, are you really sure you want to do that? That would be a very unwise thing for you to do because if you decide to leave Formula One, you're probably never coming back in this day and age because, you know, somebody else might snap that up or they just decide, okay, team whoever is gone you know we're we're happy now because we still have 11 teams you know if assuming they expand to 12 or whatever it is and uh yeah i just kind of think that once you leave that door is closed if anybody has a few moments they want to google this of course i think when we look back on 2009 we kind of gloss over this because braun was such a great story but in 2009 there was an fia fota dispute. And if you're wondering what the FOTA was, it stood for the Formula One Teams Association. And the teams had basically got together and created a union to go head-to-head with the FIA over a series of proposed changes to the rules and regulations for the 2010 Formula One season. Um, I think initially, some of the objections were around a budget cap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, all of this came together on the eve of the 2009 British Grand Prix when the FOTA teams announced that effective the next year, they were breaking away from from the FIA and Formula One and forming their own championship. So we were months away within the last decade and a half of exactly that happening, of F1 breaking down and the team starting their own championship independent of the commercial rights group and and uh, and the FIA. Yeah, it was a, a very real possibility at that uh, point in time. Anyway, so time to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about why... Uh, James Voles from uh, Williams thinks that a billion dollars is not a lot for a Formula One team. Anyways, uh, time for a quick break. We'll be back on the other side. Don't go away.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton, still breaking down all the weekly news and goings on in Formula One. And next story comes to us uh, courtesy of uh, Matt Koch over at speedcafe.com. Recently sat down, uh, virtually most likely, with with James Voles, team principal of Williams, uh, who uh, said, uh, among other things, that, uh, or suggested at least, that uh, it's not a lot to have a billion-dollar Formula One team. Anyways, in some of the uh, quotes in the article, the interview, uh, Vol said, uh, quote, here's the interesting, uh, here's the interesting, it's a billion-dollar team, a lot, I wouldn't say so. The cheapest NFL team, if you wanted to spend your money, would be $4 billion. Uh, expensive, maybe $6 billion. We're not expensive for the sport that we are, and I think that the headroom is quite significant in front of us because uh, we are, as a sport, growing significantly, and quote. I think that's uh, a very fair valuation um, or, you know, um, observation, I should say, by by, by Vols that that a billion dollars, although we're saying, whoa, a billion dollar team, like, like what are the, what are the Dallas Cowboys worth now? Five, six, eight? Yeah, they're- Ten yeah, billion dollars? Yeah, so I'll like, bring that up for you right maybe now. Maybe not ten. I'll bring that up for you right now. So Sportico uh, recently released the valuations, or at least their interpretation of team valuations. And I think- Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've got it up right here. The 2023 valuation of the Dallas Cowboys, according to Sportico.com, is $9.2 billion. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's 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 crazy. Yeah. They have got to be what the the most valuable franchise. Yeah, they must by be far, right out by of, far, across. by far, yeah. globally. Yeah. Now, Sportico yeah. also did back in the summer, and it's probably a good time to bring this up, but they also shared their understanding or their impression of F1 team valuations. And I, I really question question where they're getting some of this financial data, but I'll quickly run you through this. Um, They've ranked Ferrari, not surprisingly, as the most valuable team. And again, it's difficult to see the F1 team independent of the factory and the manufacturer, but uh, they see their valuation at 3.13 billion on 2022 revenues of $504 million with a $50 million profit. Mercedes is two, 2.7 bill on 524 million of revenue on it with a 114 million profit. Red Bull number three, 2.42 billion valuation on $395 million of revenue in 2022 with a $4 million profit. McLaren, 1.56 billion valuation. Aston Martin, 1.1 four Alpine 1.08 Alpha Tauri 905 million Alpha Romeo at 815 Williams at 795 Haas at 710 so if you look at the average blended valuation like it's already according to Sportico at 1.5 billion dollars so this this whole this, yeah. and it's so funny dude like two or three years ago I, I talked about like hey an F1 team's probably worth a billion dollars and people dumped like I was taking like I was getting like shot in the street and people are chasing after me with knives. I'm like, you're an F1 fan. Why do you object so much to the idea of an F1 team being worth a billion dollars? Not your money. Like if an, dude, if an MLS team can be worth a billion dollars, a Formula One team with a much bigger global audience could be worth a billion dollars. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, just uh, thinking about that, just logically, it has to be true. But I was just uh, thinking as you threw those numbers out there, Aston is worth, what, $1.14 billion was the valuation? $1.14 billion, yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of wondering, um, you know, like, uh, you know, Lawrence Stroll must have been pleased to see that number. I wonder what they would have been, you know, that the valuation would have come in had that team still remained as as Force India. Probably be on the lower side, kind of like the, you know, half of that, which uh, you saw, or you mentioned just know like Haas and Williams and some of those teams were like in the 700 uh, millions I mean still worth a lot of money but uh have to think that uh, you know that that Lawrence is getting something back on the investment that uh, he's made in uh in Aston Martin over the past couple of years anyways uh, next story this is an interesting one because this kind of like brings us back to what uh, we were talking about uh, at the beginning of the show when I asked you who was the best uh, team of the season so far that you know asterisk and the asterisk was uh, the team that isn't Red Bull, who obviously gets an A-plus for what they've done uh, so far in 2023. So this one comes from Jake uh, Boxall-Leggy over at uh, Auto, oh, sorry, Motorsport.com. And uh, Mercedes has finally conceded that the cost cap-induced development lag is actually a thing. And, you know, I, I still, you know, Mark, I understand that, you know, we're in a cost cap world now that the the days of you can spend your way out of a problem are a thing of the past. I'm just, you know, I, I still just can't, you know, logically compute that we're, you know, a couple of years into this new era of Formula One and Mercedes still haven't figured it out. Or if they have figured it out, they haven't been able to implement it and see real world differences on their cars and kind of go back to the Mercedes that we've been used to for the past decade. Well, Daly, according to James Allison, a big part of that is due to the cost cap. And this article, by the way, introduces something that I've never heard before, but it makes total sense. And it's it's wind tunnel lag. And it basically speaks to where their prototype is in terms of performance in the wind tunnel relative to where their car is on the track. And what James Allison talks about here is that historically, you go into the tunnel because that's where the vast majority of their development work comes from and their breakthroughs all come from the tunnel. They go into the tunnel, they find an incremental gain, they, they hand that off to the design shop who hands it off to the machine shop who creates the part and then they bolt it onto the F1 car. But the problem now is they can continue to run the the wind tunnel, although at a reduced frequency, because again, that's being regulated through the cost cap and your performance in the Constructors' Championship as well. But what he's basically suggesting is they keep finding incremental gains in the wind tunnel, but the cost cap doesn't allow them to download that to the actual physical production car. So what he's saying here, and this is a great quote, is um, instead of finding something in the tunnel and dropping it into the factory, you find something... Do not basically do nothing with it. Find something, find something, find something, then find something. And you're like, ah, okay, now that's big enough that we can put that in a package that we can afford. We'll make it put it on the car. And it means that the car lags. the. And what he says here is that means it lags the car or the car lags the wind tunnel by far more. So he, he's suggesting a couple of things here. One, that 
they still find gains in the wind tunnel, but they don't have the money in the cost cap to actually develop those parts. So they keep spinning the wind tunnel until they can find a gain that's big enough to warrant the, the kind of the financial investment to develop that part. And furthermore, he talks about the fact that teams would constantly be running out small incremental updates weekend after weekend after weekend. And now we're hearing more about these package updates where they bring a package of updates at one time. And again, that's all being driven by by the cost cap. And finally, he says, it doesn't change the gain rates in the tunnel. So he's like, they're still finding the performance gains in the tunnel. That's always the same, but the car catches up with the wind tunnel less frequently, see, and is in more lag with it. So that's how it affects you. So we're in the past, basically your prototype in the wind tunnel was very similar to your production car in terms of performance. Now there's a big gap that, 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 that prototype in the wind tunnel could be two, three, four months ahead of where your production car is. And I'm sure that creates so many frustrations for the team because they're like, they can see it, they can feel it, they can taste it, but they can't get onto the car because to produce that part costs money and they have to be very selective with where they spend their money because of the cost cap. Yeah, it's interesting, right? And I, I found this a very revealing, you know, uh, you know, admission by James Allison. And it, it's almost like you just kind of like keep going around and twisting the Rubik's cube until you solve that one size. Like, ah, this is the this is the one that's actually worth the time and the money to do it. And it's just like all these other ones. Yeah, that's good, but yeah, not worth it. Yeah, that's not worth it either. This one maybe not nah, still not worth it. It's just like aha, it's kind of like you have that eureka moment. Moment. Now, this is something, and it was, um, I, I found that just very, very fascinating because it was, um, you know, an aspect, an angle of the cost cap and the way the teams operate in the cost cap that honestly I had never even really considered before. It's just like they kind of go through, oh, yeah, well, we're going to work on updates on the car. And it's just, it, it, it brought it to a level of detail that I honestly, you know, wasn't expecting that. Uh, and it, it really is fascinating that it's it, it's basically, you know, they, they just kind of put it like a, a check mark or just draw a line through it and decide, yeah, it's not worth the, the money. So let's uh, go on to the, 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 the next one. So speaking about going on to the next one, uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, believes that uh, no F1 team should have the, the chance to dominate for years. You know, I, I do find this one a little bit ironic considering Lewis won a whole heap of championships, uh, you know, in a team that dominated Formula One for years. But, you know, I, I don't think that anyone ever accused Lewis Hamilton of being a bad sport, right? I mean, he was the best driver with the best car with the best team at the time. And I mean, he worked hard for it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? So in a uh, in, an, in an article in motorsportweek.com, uh, Hamilton says, quote, if we continue like this, maybe Ferrari will dominate in the next few years, or maybe McLaren will, or maybe Mercedes will get back in front. But I think this is not the best thing for the fans. Uh, we shouldn't have the chance to dominate for a large number of years. The battle for top positions should be closer. Unfortunately, however, Red Bull could seriously dominate even in the next three seasons. End quote. So you know that's uh, you know it's interesting that uh, that that he should say that, and unfortunately, this uh, this interview that he did with uh, Channel Four over the UK does uh, it's not really expanded upon it. So you know. I, I think that's a, it's an interesting admission, but it would have been interesting to hear what uh, you know potentially Lewis, you know, what 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 would he suggest or what's he thinking that could uh, you know change that around. I don't know. It's yeah, kind of like the thing that's 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 left unsaid is kind of the tantalizing part, right? 
Totally. And there's, I don't have a lot to add. Like this is kind of a clickbaity article because sure. we all know that that Lewis dominated for the better part of a decade. And now he's critical of and any individual team dominating because it's bad for the sport. What he's saying isn't untruthful. Um, but at the same time, what was he supposed to do with that Mercedes? Like you have the best car in the sport. You have the opportunity to pile on a bunch of championships, and he did exactly that. So I, I don't think there's anything controversial about the statement, but I, I think that there's a tacit acknowledgement that Red Bull probably will dominate through 24 and 25. And I think you and I are bracing for that, right? Like we're we're oh, yeah. we're trying to think about how to keep this show fresh and exciting for the next two years, <laughs> hoping that the reset in 2026 uh, kind of introduces some more excitement. But yeah, I think it's a bit of a clickbaity title and it's a bit of a nothing burger, a celery salad, whatever they call it. Yeah, fair enough. You know, like I say, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, he kind of says like what a lot of us are saying, but it's the the unsaid part for me that is, uh, you know, well, Lewis, if that's what you think, well, you know, let, let's hear some ideas. So talking about ideas, Frederick Vasseur, team principal at Ferrari, apparently has some ideas. And uh, he says that for 2024, they're going to change up the engineers. They're going to change up the design philosophy. And uh, well, you know, this, this could either be a home run or it could be, uh, you know, a foul ball or you could just strike out at the plate. Who knows? But the thing is that that, that I like about this attitude is that uh, Vasseur is not, uh, you know, at least uh, on the surface, is uh, not afraid to try and change uh, things up and not just kind of keep the, the wheels of Marinello turning in the same way that they have for however many years. Uh, I, I mean, they've become... What's what's the proper word here? Kind of mired, I think. They've 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 become kind of stuck. And I think that, you know, you're you're gonna have to make I don't know if radical changes, but you're gonna have to make some big changes if you're gonna break that cycle of where they've been. I mean, Ferrari, I mean, it it just it kind of boggles my mind that, you know, they you know, they've won some races here and there, but Kimmy was the last guy to win the championship back in what was that? Two thousand and what, eight, nine? seven, whatever it was. It, it's, it's been a long time, right? It's been a decade and a half since uh, a Ferrari driver was the, 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 the world champion. And we don't need to go over all the hits and misses, especially the misses have been the ones that have made the, uh, the, the, the headlines. It's just not this year. It's just not last year. It's this underlying thing, you know, theme of not quite good enough. And at sometimes that, that gap to the leaders, especially the, the first couple of years at Vettel, was there they were pretty competitive and you know he was taking wins kind of pushed Lewis for a championship for a part of a season there in 17 so but you know it's like I say it's it's the stuff that they weren't doing right sort of gotten you know horribly wrong in some cases which detract from what they're doing so they got some work to do there the the genesis for this conversation is that Frederick Vasseur sat down with the Italian publication Gazetta um, and and shared some interesting points. And the article is in Italian. And full disclosure, I didn't read it because I don't read Italian. <laughs> but while scrolling through Reddit, um, I found an individual named Snoring underscore Pig, who actually did a really good job of breaking out some of the highlights from this interview. And a couple of the big takeaways, and again, shout out Snoring Pig for this. But in the article, he mentions that he's already made 25 new hires for the technical department at Ferrari. So you talk about making big changes. That's not an insignificant change. Now, the the challenge is that most of them are on gardening leave. And he also acknowledges that it's very hard to attract and recruit technical 
expertise because most of it's based in the UK and it can be a challenge getting them to Italy. But but that's a big takeaway. Um, he also speaks very much about the drivers um, and is very complimentary about both of them, which is which is nice to hear. Um, he mentions as well that Ferrari will stop their wind tunnel developments for this season after July. So that would be done at this point. So at this point, they're probably largely focused on their 2024 Challenger and that their final upgrades based on the July data from the wind tunnel will probably arrive in time for Doha or Austin. So they'll continue to bring upgrades through the last couple of months of the season. Um, and then finally, and I thought that this was the, the gold star takeaway from this is I've talked a lot in the last couple of years ago, oh, the last couple of years about how much senior executives at Ferrari seem to be meddling in the bureaucracy that is the F1 team and undermining Bonato. And I didn't like the fact that John Elkin had reached out to Lewis Hamilton personally to offer him a contract. Like you have a team principal, like if, if Lewis is your target, get your team principal to have that conversation. But he acknowledges that he has dinner with Vina every week and Elkin frequently communicates with him over the phone. And he says this constant communication with both of them is good because it brings a alignment on internal processes and helps things get handled more quickly. So there's more cohesion from a decision-making perspective. So if, if true, that that's good because at least he's partnering in these other wise potentially meddlesome senior executives in the project and making them evolve. But if it's helping them get cohesion and consensus on decisions more quickly, that's a good thing. So yeah, a couple of good takeaways here, but I think to your bigger point that Ultimately, to me, there's probably no F1 team that's more bureaucratic and slow moving than Ferrari. And and I think that I'm not saying it needs to be leaned out or hollowed out, but they need to find some efficiencies there and they just need to be able to turn more quickly when it comes to decisions and things like that. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, another team that could uh, learn from uh, Ferrari's example of what not to do is Alpine, because as you were talking about all these different uh, things that, you know, the 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 interference or the meddling or the micromanaging, whatever you want to talk about, like, uh, you know, some of the, the, you know, the, the top level execs at uh, the, the, the Fiat group or whoever the, uh, you know, the the overarching you know, entity is, you know, it sounds very much of like a lot of the stories that we've, we've heard coming out of uh, Alpine, especially since uh, they sacked uh, Otmar Safnauer a couple of weeks ago. So it, it seems that, you know, those, you know, teams that have like operate in a structure like that, the ones that seem to do better are the ones that kind of have like the, the hands-off uh, owners, you know, or the, the hands-off uh, executives. I mean, you know, Mercedes, because they operate as an independent race team. Obviously, they they report back, and um, but you know you don't hear like the <laughs> you know the chairperson of uh, Mercedes you know getting involved in those uh, sorts of things. So interesting comp, and uh, you know glad to see that uh, Vasseur is ready to do the things that uh, need to be done. We'll see how uh, successful that uh, he is. Okay, um, let's uh, take another quick break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, side pods. We're going to talk about a couple other things uh, before in the news, that is, until we get into our race preview. So don't go away. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
All right, welcome back to the program. Couple more news stories to go over before we get to our race preview. Uh, the next one is a, a technical one, Mark, uh, from motorsport.com, entitled How the Downwash Solution Ended Up Winning F1 Side Pod War. So, you know, the, we had uh, new technical regs coming into effect for uh, last year. So, this is the second year that we've seen uh, these uh, new cars. We saw the porpoising thing last year. So, um, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, the way that things have, uh, you know, developed in, you know, Ferrari, sorry, not Ferrari, Mercedes, they went with this side podless car, which is a concept that they finally walked away from just to, only just as recently as a couple of months ago, uh, earlier this spring of this, uh, th- this year. But uh, this is an interesting one. Why don't, uh, why don't you give us a little bit more background on this one? Yeah, so this is a great article in motorsport.com by Matt Summerfield. And, and he talks about how this downwash side pod concept one f1's quote-unquote side pod war and i i think I'd, I'd like to speak less about that conceptually and functionally and, and practically and more about the fact that when we made the transition into 2022 we knew that the cars were dramatically different right but there was also this almost shared consensus around concerns that the championship was becoming more Oh, more spec-like in the fact that the regulations are tighter. And when the regulations are tight, the teams have less autonomy to develop parts. And when the regulations are looser, they have more autonomy. So when the regulations are looser, you see wildly varying interpretations of the regulations and drastically different cars on the grid. And when the championship began last season, I think most of us were pretty surprised by the variety um, in terms of aerodynamic designs that the teams were bringing. And you talk about Mercedes and their zero pod design. And of course, uh, Ferrari had a fairly outrageous bathtub design and they're all functionally very, very visually, very... And functionally very, very different. And I think what we've seen, and I've said this before on the podcast, and again, this isn't my term, I'm stealing it from somebody else, but with time, engineers and designers will eventually draw the same conclusions, right? That they all start with these regulations and they develop something that they believe will be very, very, very efficient at what it needs to do, creating downforce, um, being slippery, all these kind of things. But ultimately, given time, typically those ideas seem to congeal in the same direction. And it's either because through the wind tunnel and through simulations, the data starts just going in the same direction amongst the same 10 teams, or one of the teams does something that's so effective that the rest of the teams just migrate their data in such a way that it ultimately emulates what's happening. And I think what's happened here is Red Bull developed a very effective side pod design in terms of outwashing the air off the side of the car and through the back without creating a lot of disruption, without creating a lot of drag, and the rest of the field are going in that same direction. So I think this is less about the regulations being tight and truly informing the decisions that the teams are making, but rather the fact that with time, everyone's basically just drawn the same conclusion that this is the design that works best in a world where 80% of your downforce is coming off the bottom of your car. But really great article from Matt Summerfield. Totally recommend you check this out if you're really interested in aerodynamic surfaces and things like that. But again, my bigger takeaway here was about the current regulations and the amount of autonomy that teams do or don't have. And just that the fact that all the cars are going to start looking a lot more alike is less a result of the regulations 
kind of depriving teams of autonomy and more the fact that, hey, the designers and the engineers and the everyone else involved with the team is just kind of coming to the same conclusions that, hey, this specific design works best. Yeah, when you have like, uh, you know, design teams and nine other Formula One teams, say probably taking hints from Red Bull in a cost cap world, thinking, okay, what are these guys doing that, uh, that, that that's working? Maybe we should, uh, you know, come on being a little bit uh, silly here, but you know, there, there probably is a kernel of truth in that, that teams know that that Red Bull is, is, is so dominant. And, you know, if they're, they're getting it right, what is slightly different on their cars than our cars that is uh, making such a, a, a big difference. So very interesting. And uh, again, it kind of comes back a little bit to the, 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 the cost cap again. And some of those, uh, you know, quotes we were talking about a little bit earlier by uh, James Allison over at uh, Mercedes. Very cool. Very cool. All right, so this next one, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not sure, Mark, where we landed on this one because we talked about it <laughs> before we uh, actually sat down to record. Daily, let me take this one. I'll make okay. it super quick because okay. we want to get to the race preview. Yes. Uh, but basically, there was an article in motorsport.com and it reminded us of something. And it reminded us of the fact that every F1 driver, based on the new regulations, F, every F1 driver during the course of a championship has to turn over their car to a rookie once during the championship. And a rookie is basically designed to somebody that has no more than two Grand Prix starts. So for instance, Lewis Hamilton, once in the championship, has to turn his car over to a rookie. Uh, Charles Leclerc has to turn his car over to a rookie. And the point is to produce more exposure for these young drivers, help with their developmental prospects. But ultimately, I think what this article is speaking to is, hey, we're more than halfway through the championship and very few rookies have had an opportunity to sit in a car this year. And part of the reason for that is the fact that we have six sprint weekends. And in a sprint weekend, you're not going to give up your seat in that one practice session when you need to dial in that car to a rookie. So, you know, that's not going to happen in those races. But basically, it speaks to the fact that on the back half of the calendar, a lot of these teams are going to have to make monumental efforts to get a rookie in their car. But when you get to Mexico and when you get to Yoss, Pirelli are also going to be testing new compound of tires, the 2024 sprint tires. So that's going to throw a wrench into it. But I think really just a reminder here is the fact that, hey, as per the regulations, every driver has to sit out one free practice, one session every single year for a rookie. We just haven't seen a lot of that yet this year. I think we're going to see Schwartzman this weekend in Zandvoort, although that's not yet confirmed. But ultimately, uh, again, it's the regulation and the teams haven't been adhering to it this so far this year. Okay, so you figured it out because uh, we were kind of going over this one uh, before the show started. What does this mean? Yeah, yeah what, what does, does this, this mean? mean? Okay, you figured it out. So that, that uh, nothing further to add. But you know, I, I just hope that uh, you know the the times and the slots that have been allocated for these rookie drivers, if they get the benefit and the opportunity to do this, that uh, you know the teams fulfill their obligations and let the drivers get in there because you know th that is such um, you know an, an incredible part about Formula One because you know when I sat down with Stuart Bell a couple of weeks ago and we were just uh, talking about the careers of like uh, Ricardo and then we started talking about like Oscar Piastri and just uh, the, the the fact that you need several million dollars to you know in funding to have a serious crack to get like an illegal or sorry to to get to an elite level of uh, motorsport namely Formula One is uh, is the bare minimum so the opportunities that once you get there and you know that was 
was the big uh, story there that we talked about last week, uh, you know, with Alex Palu and the whole walking away from, uh, you know, the contract uh, with the McLaren and the possibility of becoming a reserve driver and getting a test, uh, test uh, sessions and things like that just seemed like the, those were going to start uh, slipping away. It's just, uh, it, it's got to be frustrating if that is your you know, your, your end goal or your, you know, the, the, the target that you have in sight as a young driver, that's what you're progressing, you know, progressing to hopefully and aiming for, you have the funding in place, but you know, the fact that these seats don't come up very often, but you know, more to the point, not only do race seats become available very often, there just aren't opportunities just to even get miles on one of these cars. That's why I think this initiative is so great. Just uh, hopefully that uh, all the rookies that get the opportunities are supposed to actually get them. They can put the miles on the car that they need to, to uh, develop. Okay. So let's, um, you know, let's, we're, we're there, Mark. Finally, it's a, it's taken a, a little while, but uh, as usual, this is a, the, the time that, uh, in this show about, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty regular that way that we're going to, um, you know, talk and preview the, the, the race this weekend. So we're going to see the, uh, the third running of the, uh, the Dutch Grand Prix in the modern era, that is, uh, after being on hiatus since 1986, it came back online in 2020. So we've been there for the last uh, couple of years and well, I guess it would have been 21, 22. So, uh, this is the third time in the, the, the modern era. So Zanfort, uh, is a interesting track, uh, you know, some stats that we have uh, there. Where did I put them? Got the wrong browser open. Here we go. Pull it back up again. So uh, Zanfort, uh, it is a, um, hang on, Grand Prix circuit, uh, 4.259 kilometers, 2.646 miles, 14 turns. Uh, the lap record was set by Lewis in 2021. It's a 111.097. So Mark, it is... Um, as we talked about uh, earlier this week, or sorry, earlier this week, earlier this show, is this going to be the opportunity for another team, another, um, you know, an, another, you know, driver going to get up and win that uh, race this uh, weekend? And it seems seems unlikely, right? It, uh, it it seems that it's just going to be more of the same. And I'm just looking at a bit of the timing here. I, I sort of stumbled a little bit because the lap record on, on one source we have here is a 111.097. And according to Pirelli Motorsport, they've got Lewis's uh, lap record at 127. So we got to put a, a 16 second spread in there, which, you know, doesn't even really account for a, uh, you know, qualifying, but uh, let, let's just keep in mind that uh, we're, we're looking at a, uh, a, um, uh, Wikipedia as well. One of the other sources as well. Anyways, what do you think? I, I mean, I, I was looking uh, earlier, so can, we're, we're, can we talk about the track a little bit too? Sure. Like, let's do that. So first of all, to answer your, your inaugural question, are Red Bull going to win this weekend? Yes. I, again, it could be wet in which case, Obviously, anything can happen, uh, but barring but barring a disaster, Max Verstappen is going to win. He's going to take his ninth win in the row. It'll be Red Bull's 417th consecutive victory. He's going. It's going to happen at home at Zandvoort in front of that Dutch crowd. It's going to be. It'll be amazing for Red Bull fans and for uh, for fans in that country. But I, I kind of want to back it up and talk a little bit about the track because I, I think it's worth putting this track into a frame of reference and. If you if you talk about circuits on the calendar, and we've been talking a lot lately about low downforce and high downforce circuits, this is 
the textbook definition of a high downforce circuit. And when we talk about a high downforce circuit, we're talking about places like the Hungora Ring in Hungary, where we just were, and we're talking about Monaco. Although, full disclosure, I don't believe that Monaco is a high downforce circuit because I don't believe there's enough cornering speed to generate downforce at that circuit. (laughs) So really, the best comp comp really is, is Hungary. And it's so much alike Hungary in the sense that it's, it's a very windy track. It's very, it's very independent of the power unit that the power units aren't particularly stressed. Of course, in Hungary, it gets hot. So there's a little bit more strain on the power unit. It's going to be very cool this weekend. So there's going to be less strain on the power unit, but you could be successful here without having a very significant power unit that you could have a power deficiency versus some of the other teams and be successful. What's really important here is having a very sticky car in terms of downforce, being able to carry a lot of speed through the corners. And and that happens with a low or high downforce wing, and it happens with a really great aerodynamic setup. So I think that's something that's worth considering. Again, like like the Hungura ring, the average speed here is relatively slow compared to a lot of the circuits. You know, if you look at, if you look at Monaco and if you look at Singapore, the average average speed around the circuits, like 150 to 160 kilometers at the Hungura ring and Zandvoort is probably more like 200 to 215 kilometers an hour. Zandvoort is quicker than the Hungora ring. Um, and like the Hungora ring, if you look at the track configuration, there's two DRS zones, but really there's one opportunity to overtake. And that one opportunity to overtake is on that main straight heading into turn one, just like it is in the Hungora ring, which is where 90% of the overtakes happen at that circuit. Now, I spent a ton of time on this track in the sim and a couple of takeaways. One is that there's actually a surprising amount of elevation change on this track. It's very roller coaster like certainly more elevation change than you get at Hungary. Uh, you spoke earlier about the bank corners. Those are fantastic. Um, I think ultimately they're engineered to allow the cars to carry a little bit more speed through that corner than they otherwise would because when you're on that bank corner, obviously there's a ton of vertical load on the tires, uh, but you're able to carry more speed independent of downforce. But again, that really the only overtaking opportunity on this track is on that main straight. So it means that like the Hungora ring and like in Monaco, qualify is ultra critical. And if you can dial in your, your high down force setup and you can put in some good, good times, um, you're going to be in a really good place for, for the circuit. Now, last year they brought, I think the C1, the C2 and the C3, and they did the same this year. But one of the notable takeaways this year is that this year's C1 is actually different than last year's C1. So last year's C1 is harder than this year's C1. This year's C1 is really kind of like a C1.5. It's a little bit, it's a little bit softer. And I because actually they have back, like what like a C0 is the hardest yeah, yeah, compound, last, you're right? right? Yeah. Last yeah. year's C1 is this year's C0. But I went back because I wanted to get a sense of what the pit stop strategy was like. I didn't realize, but it was basically a three stopper for every team on the grid last year. And every team team, it appears, I think with a couple of exceptions, used all of the compounds. So Max Verstappen, the race winner last year, he started on a fresh soft. He did 18 laps on that before switching to a fresh medium. He then went to the white hard C1 for, I think, eight laps. And then he came in again and went out on a used red soft. So he had three stops, used all three compounds. Um, And likewise, Russell had four stops. Leclerc had, or sorry, Russell had three stops, all of the compounds. Leclerc had three stops, all of the compounds. So that does throw 
an interesting wrench in, right? Like whenever you have a lot of pit stops, there's the opportunity for errors. There's the opportunity for mistakes in the pit lane. And then the other consideration too here too, and I, I didn't realize this until I was doing a little bit of research, is that the the surface at Zanvoort is comprised of, of two different portions. One section of the track was repaved in advance of the 2020 Grand Prix, because of course we were supposed to be there in 2020 pre pre-pandemic. So there's a portion of the track that has a very smooth, very unabrasive compound. And the rest of the track is actually extremely old and very abrasive to the tire. So it's this weird mix of, of surface types throughout the course of the track. But ultimately, I think it's going to be super exciting to see what the drivers dial in in terms of tire compounds. This is a very, very high stress circuit in terms of the tire, probably not quite as much as Hungary, though, even though the top speed, the average speed is a little bit higher here, the temperature is going to be much, much cooler than we typically experience in Hungary before the summer break. But again, it should be interesting. All things being equal, if it's dry, Red Bull should romp to a race victory. If it's wet, especially with the expected number of pit stops being three, almost anything can happen. But my money would be on Max Verstappen winning this Grand Prix. And I'm sure it's yours as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, Max has just been driving too good for 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 too long, and you know, it's just uh, he, like I say, he's going to be extra pumped because it's his home race. But just a couple of comments there. So first of all, like you say, like uh, when you sim this race, it's very interesting because you, they really wind up and they they come out of that final turn in the bank cornery and they come into the 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 start finish straight and they're just flying. They come into turn one. And then I, I was trying to think, what is the correct word? Because you get that one, you know, they they're just flying when they come into the like the the start finish there, right uh, along the along the straightaway. And then I'm not sure is is the track kind of collapse on itself? Does it compress? Because all of a sudden it goes from very very fast to very twisty, very tight. It kind of folds in on itself. And then any of the straight or straighter sections, they're just like in little bursts. So it's it's a very very interesting interesting way that uh, you have a very very fast section and then it's <laughs> it's kind of always the, the 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 opposite to that and like you say there is a fair amount of elevation change there because it's uh it's it's right close to the north sea it's uh, in what they call the down in the dunes so there is quite a bit of uh, undulation there there's also a golf course uh, not too uh, far away where my my cousin uh, was playing in the dutch open you know a number of years ago um so i'm i'm quite familiar with the the area so it, you know you expect that if you're going to have a um, you know a race in holland holland is of course a very very flat country you would expect uh, that it's almost going to be like a like a pool table but it's it's a great location for for a track um in regards to the weather, so while you were talking, I did look it up. So we're looking for qualifying on Saturday, uh, temperatures of about 18 degrees centigrade, which is about 65 Fahrenheit, 70% chance of rain on Saturday afternoon during qualifying. So that should make things interesting. Now, Sunday, temperatures highs in the afternoon, looking almost identical, 18 Celsius, 65 Fahrenheit, still looking at about a 40% chance of of rain so it's not as you know when it's 70 percent like that's pretty certain you're going to get something so unless you know weather changes up over the next uh, 36 hours or so i mean it sounds like we're we're pretty odds on that we're going to get a wet qualifying or maybe rain before at some point uh, in the day before qualifying maybe it happens afterwards but 40 uh, percent isn't 
insignificant either. And, you know, it just kind of makes you wonder, you know, could we maybe see a shower uh, at some point during the race on Sunday afternoon? And, and that's where I think it gets interesting. I think that, like you say, Mark, that under normal circumstances, Red Bull's just going to run away with this one. But, you know, being a, you know, a very twisty, tight track and, you know, if the weather gets bad, I mean, I, I can see somebody parking it in the gravel. I can see a safety car or a virtual safety car or something like that. And that that's where things get interesting if, uh, you know, things, you know, remember the chaotic ending to the Russian Grand Prix a couple of years ago that cost poor Lando Norris an opportunity to, to, to win a race. So, I mean, you know, when, when the weather changes like that, it certainly could be, uh, you know, rather chaotic and, you know, it wouldn't be a, a bad thing. So a couple other stories kind of floating around when it comes to, uh, to Zanfort, uh, this weekend, um, is, and I'm just looking here, I found uh, another, um, you know, confirmation. So it looks like the lap record actually is the lower of the two, a 111.097. So I'm not exactly sure where Pirelli's getting their, getting their, their, their data from, which is kind of an interesting thing they would have got it right. Um, anyway, so when it comes to things like um, the the actual race experience himself, uh, Adam Cooper over at motorsport.com says uh, that uh, th- that the organizers this year are really going to like try and clamp down on the use of flares by the spectators. And this is kind of something, I mean, if you're used to European soccer, this is something you see all the time. And this is kind of a phenomenon that's really kind of like... Um, uh, you know, really increased over the past couple of years as Max has become a force in Formula One by, you know, Max's, uh, you know, Dutch fans, the Dutch army, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and I think last year I remember watching this race and it seemed like there was a crazy amount of use of uh, of flares. I mean, it's kind of cool, but at some point, you know, it's a little bit uh, too much. And, you know, honestly, if I was sitting in the stands there, I don't know what, if I'd be all that, uh, you know, you know, happy to be breathing in orange smoke uh, the entire uh, afternoon. Uh, they're also going to do, they've got some uh, other uh, things uh, going on that they, they, they want to be be uh, you know, uh, you know uh, a, a leader in inclusivity to all different uh, kinds of uh, Formula One fans, which uh, I think is uh, very good and very commendable as well. And Mark, you know, I don't know, um, I, <laughs> you know, just uh, as you were saying just now uh, that, uh, you know, th- this seems like a lock for backs at Red Bull. I don't really know what else <laughs> to add to this one. Although uh, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, it is interesting the way that uh, that, that Mercedes has surged a little bit over the past uh, couple of months, has uh, caught up and overtaken Aston Martin in the Constructors Championship. So Aston has fallen from second to third and and uh, when uh, you go down the constructors, um, they're only four or five points ahead of uh, Ferrari. So that certainly is one story. It's not the main story. People, of course, people are. I don't really kind of tune in to see what's going to happen to third or fourth in the constructors' championship. I get it. I totally understand it. However, you know there there are some different threads to pull on, different storylines to follow, and that's uh, certainly one of them. The other one will be: you know, Will we see McLaren kind of um, you know? continue with uh, their progression and uh, the the big improvements that we've seen with their cars and uh, we've seen some exciting outings from Oscar Piastri over the past uh, couple several races so those are a couple of different stories anything else that uh, that you're going to be looking for this weekend Mark yeah so for sure thank you for asking I, I think there's a couple of things one Daniel Ricardo I can't 
Daniel Ricardo continue to build a case to be considered for a Red Bull seat at some point in the in the future? I think I'm going to watch that. Uh, obviously, I think you you touched on something earlier in the show that is obviously going to be compelling over the back of the season, which is kind of Aston Martin and Mercedes kind of kind of dueling for P2 and the constructors. Although I think that's less valid than watching Ferrari hunt down Aston Martin. And wouldn't it be hugely disappointing for Aston Martin if they're ultimately overtaken by Ferrari? And then I think a lot of us can kind of point the blame at, at Lance Stroll in the sense that he didn't make hay in the first half of the season when they had that really terrific advantage. And then I think while talking about Aston Martin, the other thing I'm going to be looking for is we talked a lot this summer about the fact that their performance advantage just vanished this season. And my crack team principal kept saying, hey, we brought an upgrade that had some unintended effects. And they effectively broke their own car and they had to figure out what went wrong and then add some incremental upgrades to offset the unintended consequences of, of a previous upgrade. Again, there's also, again, that was all against the backdrop of these rumors that the FIA had caught them using a flexi front wing, which was really giving them some advantage in the first half of the season. So all of that to say, I'll be very interested to see what happens with that team as well. Um, and then of course, as you go lower down in the grid, yeah, what happens with McLaren? Obviously they've been surging. Uh, they were surging in the last couple of races before the summer. Can they make some hay? I certainly don't think they're going to contend with Aston Martin for P3 or P4 of the championship. Um, actually, what would that be? Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari, Aston Martin. Yeah, I don't think they're going to contend, but anything is possible. There's only a 90-point gap between the two of them right now, and certainly Lance Stroll hasn't delivered this year, so anything's possible. But yeah, so despite the fact that the championship's over, I think there's still a lot of things to to look for and watch and talk about over the next three or four months. Yeah, and then especially like the, the this weekend, I'm 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 hoping for a wet weekend. I think that uh, it'll uh, change things up and uh, make it uh, exciting. And speaking of uh, exciting, <laughs> we will be back on Sunday night. We're going to park it here for now. So thank you, uh, one and all, for for joining in, Mark. I know that uh, you've always got a little request at this time of the program, just as we start to shut things uh, down and turn off the lights and uh, call it a night. Two things. Don't forget, we are going to be hosting a Formula One watch party in Coquitlam, a suburb of Vancouver, British Columbia on Saturday, November 18th. We are now close enough to that event that I want to start taking names and planning a little bit more. And then the other piece too is if you listen and you listen on Spotify, if you could give us a rating, please, that would be awesome. And if you listen on Apple, and if you could give us a rating and a review, that would be fantastic. We don't ask for a lot, but a rating and a review is something that means a lot to both of us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, really looking forward to uh, that watch party coming up. Of course, looking forward to seeing that uh, very first inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix later on this year in November. And um, just before we go, if you want to get in touch, send us a, a message, a slide into our DMs on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. Send us an email at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com. Twitter handle is uh, scooteryf1pod. And that's it. That's a wrap. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the Grand Prix. And we'll talk to you again on Sunday night. Bye for now.